I have syphilis. Syphilis? It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It can cause heart abnormalities, mental disorders, blindness. Thank you for the public service announcement, Dr. Taylor, but the patient's already been treated and cured. From Slightly Unbalanced, we are still queer as folk. I'm Patrick Randall. And I'm Matt Dominguez. Today we're talking about episode five of season five, and it's called Excluding and Abstemiousness. It first aired in the U.S. on June 12, 2005. It was written by Sean Postoff, his sixth of seven episodes, and he also served as story editor for 14 episodes. Excluding and Abstemiousness was directed by Chris Grismer, who only directed three episodes of Queer Folk. He went on to direct episodes of Kyle XY, Orphan Black, and the Kiefer Sutherland vehicle, Designated Survivor. Uh, that's a great show, though, if you can imagine Kiefer Sutherland not playing Jack Bauer, but playing a very subdued president wearing cardigans. Right, because... Uh... <laughs> He was not expecting to be the president and designated survivor. Like right. he was like what a hundredth in line or something. He's like the secretary <laughs> of agriculture or something. Yeah, like that. and then some like enough people got killed and some what bombing. I think is how the show starts. Yeah, they bombed the Capitol during the State oh. of the Union address. Oof. Okay. Yeah, I guess that he, would do he it. was the designated survivor and the only one that survived. Oof. Yeah. Uh, Here is the synopsis of excluding and abstemiousness. I don't even know if I got even close to that. That's good. But they, oh, good. Thank means God. abstention. I think they could have just called it abstention or something. Uh, the fight over baby JR intensifies when Michael and Ben leave her with Justin and Daphne. We're excited. Yay, Daphne. And she promptly suffers from a fever and ear infection, causing Melanie, Lindsay, Michael, and Ben to confront the situation at the hospital. Daphne had a fever? No, JR had a fever. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's go ahead and say that JR... Uh, the fight over baby JR intensifies when Michael and Ben leave her with Justin and Daphne, and JR promptly suffers from. <laughs> I like the idea infection. of Daphne getting feverish. <laughs> <laughs> right. She's just back. That's why she's so warm. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're left with Lindsay and Michael saying that they are withdrawing from the three way custody agreement. Hunter's troubles at school continue after a car crash of a parents' meeting. <laughs> Kelly seems on his side at first but then wanders off with a boyfriend that we never knew existed. Ted's plastic surgery story comes to an end when he appears at the bar looking exactly like he did before he had plastic surgery. <laughs> and finally, Loretta's awkward injection into the queerest folk comes to an end after Debbie at long last tells her that she's straight and not interested in her. <sighs> a couple of stories that I'm glad are over with there. Oh, Okay. So let's talk about our A story, uh, Pass the Baby Around, I guess we'll call it. Mm -hmm. There was a, a really nice uh, Chris Grismer trademark little montage of Baby JR being passed around between the three parents at the beginning. It was only a few seconds long, but it was, uh, it was enough to remind us that JR is in a less than ideal situation with three parental units sharing custody. So. They're pushing her back and forth, and she starts out liking it, and then she's in tears by the end of that scene. So I thought that was really nice and, and stylish. Yes, and it, it reminded me, I think it was uh, the last episode where we had that really odd transition of the club music into... Oh, right. <laughs> you know, Michael and Ben oh, looking over at baby JR in the crib, 
And it, it, to us, it was really awkward. But here, I thought it was actually a lot of fun to to play up that 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 change. Uh, and so, yeah, I enjoyed that transition of passing the the hot baby to the hot <laughs> potato. <laughs> it's <a> cute baby <laughs> between the three. It was fun. Yeah. Uh, so it's bill pay time at Melanie and Lindsay's house, and they're bickering over bills. Why should I have to pay for half the water heater, considering I no longer live here or take baths here? But your children do, and I pay for half of your apartment, and I don't live there. I still don't think it's fair. You didn't even consult me, yet you expect me to pay? Okay, tell you what. I take them down to the river, where I'll wash them, and while I'm at it, I'll beat their clothes against the rocks. You always have a smart answer. Well, the stupid answer would be fine. You don't have to pay. But you're not going to hear that from me. I'm stretched to the limit as it is. I'm sure you can find the money elsewhere. Any bright ideas? Go back to work. Go back to... When you had Gus, I made sure that you were as comfortable as possible so you could stay home with him. It was a completely different set of circumstances. Oh, how's that? We were still living together. And we still loved each other. I started to, to wonder how long that financial relationship would be in place, though. Melanie is paying for half of Lindsay's apartment, as we find out. And she also wants half of the house's bills. It seems like that can't really last forever with a couple that has split up and really has no legal remedy for spousal support. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It, it's something that isn't really explained to us of how long are you guys going to keep doing that? Right, because I think Lindsay has a point in saying that her financial responsibilities really should only end with Gus, and, and, and at least at this point, Jr. Like, that's it. And so Melanie's, like, roundabout way of saying, like, no, you deserve to pay half the utilities because this is, you know, the children that you're or this is the roof in which your children also sleep and stuff. And like, mm, I think you're also kind of milking her because if you're paying for half of her apartment and then she's paying for half of the bills in the house, then what's the point in you paying for half of her apartment? Yeah. At some point they got to like go their own way. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, do they then say, okay, I'm only paying for the children. I'm going to funnel those funds into a bank account and this is where you will withdraw that from or so, like something like mm -hmm. that makes sense. But this bickering back and forth, I feel like Melanie's really being petty. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to, you know, try and get all this money out of Lindsay. Like I know like I know we know from way back when that Lindsay comes from a very well off family. But if also they don't really accept her <laughs> because she's a lesbian. So does she really have the funds in which to continue to pay for this stuff? And Melanie is a lawyer. But I mean, you know, this, this again, this goes into that whole conversation we've had all the time where it always seems like they are always struggling to pay the bills. But it's like you are two wealthy white women. What are we struggling about? And if you think about it, these are the only two characters that really ever seem to struggle for money in the show. Mm -hmm. Ted did briefly when he spent it all on crystal meth and had no job. But there was some causality behind that. Uh, we did find right. out that Melanie's not working right now, but you would think that she would be on paid maternity leave at some point. It, that yeah, yes, that's my assumption. And like the only other time was like we we saw Brian suffer like very very briefly before he bounced back like nobody's business. Right. They never make the men truly struggle with finances, and it feels like the our our lesbian characters like from episode one they've had to struggle with this. Yeah, and even Debbie was ready to drop forty grand on that statue, so she had forty grand available. <laughs> so uh, Daphne and Justin are going to babysit Jr. And holy shit, it's Daphne! Now, I'm sure we'll be back before she wakes up. Yeah. So just uh, keep the monitor with you, and uh, make yourselves at home. Thanks. 
You have my cell phone number, just in case. Don't worry. All right, have fun, you too. Thanks again. <laughs> I, <laughs> for a second there, I was like, did they bring somebody else? This isn't actually Daphne, is it? Like, I could not believe it. After all this time of us missing Daphne, we finally got her, and she's a babysitter. And I was just like, it's fucking Daphne. I'm happy. When she had, like, four lines, though, and that was it. And unfortunately, this is her second to the last episode. We only see her one more time. And then who knows what happens to her. It's a shame. I wonder if she survives the series. Mm. Ooh. Uh, so this is uh, also another case of recycled storyline. This is almost the exact same scene as when Justin was babysitting Gus in season one. Do you remember that? When all of a sudden there's like some kind of baby drama and Melanie has to come to the rescue. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And I got a couple more notes about that after uh, we get to Melody going batshit crazy. Oh, oh, okay. Oh my God, she's burning up. What? Oh. I better call Michael. Fuck. It went straight to voicemail. So my question about this was, is, is this serious enough that everybody needed to converge at the hospital? Like, do you, for an earache and a small baby fever, does like everybody have to show up? No, absolutely not. But then this also leads into the point in, in the climax of the hospital of what, of how the three of them is really being detrimental to JR's well-being. Because you're right, like it's, it's a fever. Like when she... When Lindsay comes out after being with the doctor, she says they gave her some baby Tylenol for the fever and some, you know, antibiotics for the earache. The end. Like, that's all it had to be. They make it sound like she was dying. Well, I guess uh, this all came together because Justin couldn't get a hold of Michael. So he called Melanie and that guy. I don't know how Lindsay knew to show up there, but <laughs> somehow everybody that's just shows up. That's a very good point. <laughs> well, maybe that was the, because when he... When Justin couldn't get a hold of Michael, we saw him look at his phone, and the next thing I know, we see that it's Melanie. Was it? I, I was wondering if maybe they were leaving it up in the air as to who was going to show up or who he called. Yeah, maybe I guess that's what that, it was. If you're the babysitter, it's like, why don't you take the baby to the hospital, right? <laughs> well, it becomes a question of whether, like, you're not the legal guardian. Yeah, but if there's a baby in distress, it's like you got to treat the right. baby. Right. Well, usually, I think you would then call nine one one. A good point. If that was the issue. But, <laughs> but I mean, I think I don't think it makes sense that Justin would then call whatever next parent he could find. Yeah. Go down the phone tree of parents. Right? Uh, so <laughs> it's an on-call rotation. Melanie's lines here were so close to season one, episode 15 about Gus, where she's questioning the, the validity of or the skills of a parent. Way back in season one, she was questioning Brian. That was when Brian uh, left the baby with Justin and then went to like the leather ball or something like that. And yes. Mm -hmm. Then uh, Melanie decided to stop by and say, hey, Jay, how's the baby doing? And Justin was about to feed the baby like scalding hot milk or something. And <laughs> oh, she yeah. just laid into <laughs> Brian about Brian being unfit as a parent. And she did the same thing here where Michael is unfit as a parent, which, okay, Fair comment, but we've seen this before. We've seen this story before where Melanie thinks that nobody can parent. We needed something new here. Granted, it's four and a half years later, but 
I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> have you been waiting long? An hour, at least. It's incredible. They see you sitting here with a screaming infant. You think they'd have the decent We just got the message. Uh, where? In Babylon? Fuck you. Hey, hey, easy, easy. We were at Hunter's school. There was a problem. Yeah, I'll say there's a problem. She's been waiting over an hour. There's got to be someone to talk to. How could to? you leave her like that? After all the crap you put us through? It's unforgivable. She was with Justin and yeah, Daphne. what the hell do they know? Uh, enough to call you. You have no say in this, so butt out. Excuse me? Don't talk to him like that. We have another kid who needed our attention. I don't care about your other kid right now. I care about this one. My daughter, who happens to be in a lot of pain. I'm gonna find a nurse. All I know is that the minute you have her, you take off. Well, wait till my lawyer hears about this, because this time, there'll be no settling. We're going to go to court, and I will make sure that you lose custody. You just try it. The doctor will see your baby now. It's about fucking time. Okay, so I have real problems with Melanie trying to shun Michael and Ben for having a babysitter. First of all, they got two people that everyone has relied on before. Like Justin has. Justin like clearly babys- can't be trusted with small children, though. <laughs> well, I think he can because he's calling. He's when he sees something wrong or in distress, he's starting to he call the right people. Yeah. So he does act accordingly. They've gone to him again before. So I don't see the problem there. Now, Melanie chewing out Michael because they were making sure they were taking care of their other child and then her is like i don't care about you that child i care about this one and i'm like yeah, sophie's choice <laughs> wow <laughs> fuck off melanie like hunter is still their son and still the one that they care for that's why they made sure that they had someone capable of taking care of the baby they babies are unpredictable <laughs> how old does a baby have to be before you can have a sitter i mean is this like months or how old is jr jr's Got to be like two, three months old at this point. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that, that happens. babysitter I mean, age? Well, yeah, babysitters, you know, there are de- definitely, I think babysitters have a, a variety of skill level. Like, I'm really good with these age groups, or I'm really mm. good with newborns, or I'm really good with infants, or, you know. As they need the as grandparents they need the- here. They don't need Justin and Daphne. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's uh, this funny tug of war over Jr at uh, the end when she comes out of the, the treatment room. I thought they were gonna rip the baby in half. Okay, sweetie, I'll take you home. I was just about to say the same thing. Why would she go with you? Because it's still my time. I say you've had enough time. We have an agreement. After you practically abandoned her? Would you please calm down? I agree. A sick baby needs to be with her mother. I am just as capable of taking care of her so as you've you. You've proven that. Come with daddy, honey. Buddy. She's coming with me. Would you two stop? It's like Michael has one leg and one arm and Melanie has one leg and one arm and they're like pulling on her. I mean, I you like, would wow. think they were ready to, I thought they were ready to just modest proposal her. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and so I love that Lindsay's like, what the fuck is wrong with y'all? You know what? I'm out of this because clearly y'all don't care about the baby. You care about yourselves. And I was like, thank you. I don't think either one of you gives a damn about your daughter's welfare. All you're concerned about is who has ownership. That is not true. How could you say that? And I've been a part of it. Well, no more. I'm withdrawing from this custodial circus right now. Jenny, Rebecca, is all yours. I just hope you spend as much time thinking about her needs as you do about yours. I I, I don't know about that, though. I wasn't quite convinced. Lindsay just withdraws from the custody agreement right then and there. I don't know. I, I just didn't really buy that. Michael and Melanie were only in it for themselves. I mean, granted, some of the storylines that we had leading up to this were a little shaky. But I never really thought that Michael would, like, risk his child or anything like that. So I just thought it was a little lightweight that Lindsay is just saying, you guys are only about yourselves there. 
I just didn't quite buy that. Oh, see, I did because the vibe I was getting from those two is that this is clearly like it almost felt like it was going to be an all or nothing situation. Like if I can't have her, then none of you can. So they were like the fact that Melanie was going to threaten Michael and saying, I'm going to get full custody because you found a suitable babysitter for when you had to take care of your other child. How fucking dare you? You know, like that was like clearly they were ready to get as vindictive as possible to destroy one another. But who does that leave? That leaves Jr. with nobody. Lindsay. Like if, (laughs) but Lindsay has also just like said, I'm out. I'm no. You know. Well, then later, though, Michael kind of does this U-turn where he says that he was never thinking what was good for the baby, but was good for himself. That was Mel. Mm. She wanted to let me know that our daughter is doing fine. Ah, it's good news. And that I'm an asshole. <laughs> she said that? No, I did. You were just looking after Jenny Rebecca's best interests. Actually, I was looking after mine. Instead of thinking about what was right for the baby or who she should be with, I was thinking about me. So, I've decided Lindsay's right. Uh, You're going to give up custody? Hmm. I would never do that. But I do think that JR needs to spend more time with her mother instead of passing her around. I still didn't buy that either. This was when they were at the bar. Yeah, somehow Lindsay's Casignation of both of them has was enough to convince him like, oh, I've been looking at this all wrong for half this season. Well, and then Michael decides that JR needs to spend more time with Melanie. Ben says that it's a very wise and loving decision. It's like Ben did this big U-turn as well. Because remember when Ben, ben is was... just like the most, pa- I think Ben is the most passive <laughs> person in this conversation. Yeah. He, he is 100% only like stepping back and letting Michael do or feel whatever he wants. Like he was so proud of him when he got the third part of custody. And now that he's willing to give up some of that custody back to Melanie, he's like, he's so proud of him with that too. And I'm like, I guess you're, you're not going to have, you're not going to have anything constructive to add to this or maybe say, Michael, maybe you are blowing this out of proportion, something. He did say that Jr. deserved to be with two loving parents in one house, not with like separated lesbians. So it's like, we talked about this in the past where Ben is more like a mouthpiece and less of a character. The writers tend to, use him to push viewpoints that ordinarily you wouldn't think that Zen professor Ben would be thinking or saying. Yeah. I don't know what to do. I, I don't, I don't know what to do with Ben anymore. At least when it comes to this, like, it, like it actually, like it actually bothers me how much like he's not been able to say or like to offer a counterpoint to the way Michael has behaved. He's like Michael's hype man. He's like yeah. just behind him going, yeah, yeah, that's what it yeah, is. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So Melanie and Lindsay um, get together for some reason at the house, and Lindsay said something that I fully bumped on here. I hope you know I never intended for it to get so ugly. Bullshit, Bullshit. you didn't. (laughs) That lawyer taking down Michael and Melanie in the hearing, that was on purpose. It's oh, like, absolutely. Yeah, you meant this to get mean. No, you, yeah, you you were 100% ready for it to get ugly. Yeah, she's the one that brought the ugly. Like, if this is your version of not, of, like, this is going too far, then I want to know what you thought when you thought you were going to be civil about it, because, damn. Yeah, and to that point, everybody is talking about how uh, what's best for JR is that they all, that uh, that Melanie should uh, have more time with JR. I just don't even buy that, though, either, because Mm -hmm. Melanie has been batshit crazy from the moment she got pregnant, and she was risking that kid's life. From the moment she started on this show. And 
Well, <laughs> everything that came up in the hearing is true. And everybody has now decided that Melanie is best for JR, even though it's clear that she's like out of her mind and unemployed, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. Like she, she goes from zero to a hundred so quick. She's best for the baby though. Apparently. We'll be back with more Still Queer as Folk. story of the night is hunter there's a great uh exterior shot with hunter ben and michael though i feel like we've seen this uh many times now at least half a dozen times where the family is the family unit is going to work and school in the morning and so mm-hmm. usually there's bicycles involved and they're all walking together generally through a park but for once uh ben and michael weren't awkwardly riding bikes this time only hunter had his bike Michael had a stroller. I think this was really only for Brian to be able to pull up in his Corvette. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and <laughs> have that brief moment. <laughs> Why is Brian's Corvette always filthy? It's like, surely he would have it washed regularly, right? It's like, it's always dirty. It always has like salt on it and stuff oh, yeah, like that. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's because we've bummed on how this show seems that it only films in the winter. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, yeah, we're just, we're, and you know, the show is in the Northeast otherwise known as Canada. So it's, yeah, it's always snowy. And so, yeah, it is. Everything's dirty. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's disgusting there. Which is actually one of the, the reasons why I, I kind of like the show is because nowadays, if you do a gay show, you have to have naked people, nearly naked people on a beach someplace wearing mm-hmm. old line cloths. And yes. I don't think that that really is useful in trying to convey serious drama because it's just way too distracting. And so I think Queer as Folk actually was onto something here. And the original Queer as Folk uh, was set in Manchester, which is also a working class northern community that is kind of grungy and dirty. And it's not a bunch of people running around in their underwear, acting all hysterical, golden brown, like their <laughs> um, eyebrows perfectly tweezed and things like that. So I, I do like the realism of it, but it's like, Brian, wash the damn car. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just run it through a wash. Just, yeah. Just one. Give us something. It's free when you get gas, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So... In this walk, I think we get a couple of really important plot points. One, that Hunter has basically been shunned from the swim team. So, pal, you be coming home after school? No, I thought I'd join the Cirque du Soleil. Smartass. Where the hell else would I be going? Now that I've politely been told it'd be best for all concerned if I were no longer on the swim team. Aren't there other extracurricular activities you can participate in? You mean where I wouldn't endanger the lives of the other students? Hey, what about the chess club? Although, I might get cut checkmating my Do you cut it out? No, why don't you with your fucking helpful suggestions? Okay, you two. All I'm saying is you can go around being pissed and bitter, or you can forget about it and move on. They're lost. Yeah, I bet they're all broken up about it. I really have to bum on how Michael handles how hurt Hunter is in this moment. Like, he's really dismissive of his feelings, where he's just like, just get over it. It's like, he finally, like, landed onto something that he was really great at, he found a group of students, you know, or peers that were likely a very good influence on him. Like he had a lot going for him. He was in such a he was going for his optimate level of success here. And it all comes crashing down. And then on top of that, he's still a teenager trying to navigate his way to what it's like being HIV positive and from the 
uh, past traumas he's experienced. And Michael just tells him, get over it. Yeah, I get the feeling that Michael likes his new toy better than his old toy. He likes JR. Yeah, almost like he's almost like, oh, I can I can start fresh with this one. So I'm gonna show how perfect that can be for JR. Hunter is like the one that I'll try and fix, but I'll only get so far. Like it's really kind of rude. I think the writing with Hunter started to suffer a little bit here. For example, when uh, Brian pulls up. Hey champ, fuck you. The fear of being straight doesn't agree with the lad. This just reminded me how stupid it was to make Hunter straight all of a sudden. I miss that Hunter that was gay that idolized Brian and kept trying to hook up with him. The notion of a confused gay teenager or hustler turning straight seems like a waste of queer as folk screen time. Like seeing seeing Hunter struggle as a gay teenager would have been more interesting than turning him straight. Uh, I I disagree that he was that they just tried to turn him straight. I think he was always straight. He was only doing what he had been basically trained to do. Uh, fine, and, but, why, and, and, but why do we need that character in a show called Queer as Folk, right? Well, I, the I want the queer we, experience. I mean, sure, but, I mean, but we, we have straight characters in their experiences too. I mean, that's why Debbie's in the show too. I've got I think a, Hunter the same also, complaint there. <laughs> well, sure. But what I like about Hunter, like I never thought that Hunter was trying to like get with Brian because he idolized him in some way. He saw someone who had money, so he's like, great, I can I can hustle this guy. <laughs> that was always the vibe I got. I never thought it was like, I want to be him. Mm, I want to get his money because clearly he's got it. Something that I'm not sure about here is, uh, are Ben and Brian fighting? Because Brian offered Ben a ride and Ben just says that he'd rather take the bus. <laughs> I give you a ride, Professor? Uh, no, thanks. I'll grab a bus. What are they fighting over? Why is Ben well, First like- of all, I've forgotten <laughs> that Ben was professoring again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He said he was going to class or something. I was like, oh, right, you're a teacher. There's a, something about this scene that I thought was weird, too, is that Michael is pushing the pram, apparently containing JR, yet nobody ever acknowledges the baby. And we only see the stroller in the establishing shot. And everything else is like two shots, head and shoulder two shots. We never see the, yeah, they, we they never could, hear they, from the baby. We don't even hear <laughs> or anything like that. It's just all of no, a sudden, like, where'd it go? Could props not even get a baby, like, doll? Right. <laughs> Something? No. So Hunter goes to school. Uh, There's nice uh, Chris Grismer treatment of Hunter kind of threading the needle of his classmates, and they're all staring at him. It's all slow motion. There's a song uh, by Uncle playing called Awake the Unkind. I I thought that was, like, so stylish. And at this point, I'm still a Callie fan. She's like that cool girl that doesn't care what parents think or what her friends think, and she's going to go her own way. And she's still like readily engaging with Hunter, whereas everybody else is looking at him as damaged goods. The pariah, yeah. Yeah. And so I like that mm-hmm. that intro scene. I thought that was really well shot. Yeah, and Callie being I always, I describe Callie as the ally. Like she is the one who somehow is the most educated, most articulate, the most understanding. For the moment. Uh for the moment, <laughs> yes. Uh, and I and I loved this back and forth because Hunter is still very cold towards her because he only he believes that the way the school found out was or the way the students found out about his past was through Callie because she was the only one that he had told. But when she and she very quickly says like, no, it was my fucking parents. And like, God, these people are the worst. They are the worst kind of people. Surely like somebody else would have known about this. It's I don't know. It just seems like he has all of his hustler friends. So it seems like like friends of friends or something like that. It doesn't seem like a kind of secret that 
would stay in the box for very long. Maybe it's a shame thing. Like what? Cause I'm assuming some of those parents have gone to these teen hustlers and <laughs> you like, young yeah, Jack? like they, they like, Oh yeah, that's Hunter. He worked on this credit, but then the parent would have to acknowledge how they found out. Well, let's talk about this parents meeting. Ooh, yes. Let's the first thing I noticed was it was kind of sparsely attended for such a hot button issue. I wanted to see that auditorium filled with people. Well, I think it was only the swim. Oh, it's the swim family. I think it was just the swim team parents. Okay. Well, Ben uh, slayed that yappy parent talking about a Dickens novel. Well, you don't know a damn thing about his background, how he was abused by his mother, how he had to escape from a series of foster homes, literally sleep in the street, or how he had to regain his health to catch up in school. What is this? The plot to a Charles Dickens novel? (laughs) (laughs) Your, Your children lead privileged lives, and you dare to laugh at my son's misfortune. It's okay, Ben. I'm glad I came here tonight. Because I learned something too. Now I know how your kids got to be the way they are. From you. Oh my God. The fact that they were like laughing and Hunter was right there. And then Hunter slayed all of them. Oh, uh, it was. And then the meeting's over though. That's it. <laughs> this meeting yeah, they, could yes, have yes, gone yes, much know. further. Oh yeah, like he shames them. Nobody had anything else to say. The next thing that was over, I was like, no, I, I would have. What if the, what if the episode was just that parents meeting? Mm-hmm. Trade out that Ted story for this riveting and important story about Hunter being HIV positive and on the swim team and bleeding into the pool. It's like meeting over. <laughs> I, I, and this is this is like such a minor thing, but something that I, I actually really appreciated was that I liked that the health expert that they brought in was someone was a female. It's something that the parents probably could have easily have dismissed if it was like another gay male who came in. Like that felt like it would have just been fueled to the fire. So it's like, here is what I assume to be straight female presenting person giving you the facts about HIV and knowing that like, oh, how it exists outside the bubble that you think it does. I could be reading far too much into it, but like that was the uh, something that I noticed in it. No, I think it's good casting. I, I, I think you picked up on something that was important there is they tried to normalize it and not make mm-hmm. it a gay issue, but make it a health issue, which is what it is. Absolutely. This story was kind of pulled from Ryan White's real story when a group of parents wanted him, who was HIV positive, straight, excluded from school. And it actually, the, the Ryan White Care Act is the umbrella for all uh, subsidized HIV treatment in the U.S. And this had a direct tie-in to a group of parents trying to run Ryan White out of school. So I, I like that tie-in, and I, and I wish they would have like brought it up. <laughs> you had to kind yeah, of know like, like, the you're, you're touching here. on a very, a very sensitive topic, and what an opportunity to be that voice, that sounding board and try and get that out there into a further national conversation. But yeah, we, they just cut away and like, that's the end of the meeting. The parents like allegedly might have opened up a little more to the idea or feel a little remorseful for how they've treated Hunter. I like that. He said like, I know where your kids got it. I got from you and they all like look down and shame. And I'm like, I wish (laughs) it's like, wouldn't it be great if real life were like that? Because there are some parents who would not blink an eye. Well, I did like that Hunter was holding so firm to his ideals here, but that's not what we were told leading up to this moment where he slayed them all or even right after the moment. And from a storytelling perspective, this moment of standing up for yourself didn't quite fit with Hunter's downward spiral. So it it seemed like this was in the wrong place in the overall story. This 
might have worked better if it was the kickoff to Hunter going downhill. But we see Hunter mm. like being really upset and really going downhill like way before this meeting. So he was a little bit of a roller coaster there. And I just think the pacing and the the order of this could have been different. Hmm. You know, I, I think it's interesting to provide it as almost like a last hurrah. Like this is his last grasp of I'm going to be able to stand for I want for what I want for who I am. And I think he does that. And so it offers like a moment of success in what has otherwise been like they've been beating him into the ground. Well, he didn't, though. He he said those words, but then he kind of started to cave immediately afterwards. Uh, so like Hunter and Callie were at school. So Callie has a boyfriend this entire time. Bitch. Uh, this is well, when listen, I started to really hate Callie, on. though. <laughs> It's not Callie's fault. Although one thing before we get she to the point. She should have told like that, him that. Like, well, yes. From the get, like that though. second she he grabbed her hand and was clearly flirty. She's like, eh, and then gets kind of caught. Yeah, this has been um, going on with that guy for a while. So she had a responsibility mm-hmm. to tell Hunter. Yes, that this is still like I'm caring for you as a friend situation. Right. Not that, oh, our romance could possibly re- be rekindled. Exactly. But one other Good thing drama, I though, have to admit, <laughs> Oh, yes, absolutely. Because then, yeah, then, then that leads into his, his more dramatic spiral. But one thing I had to point out is that Callie revealing that her parents are liberal Democrats. So what happened? My parents nearly shit. You did? Well, like, duh, you probably called them a couple of fascist hate mongers. <laughs> do you know what that can do to two lifelong liberal Democrats? Worried he might be angry. Are you kidding? They so deserved it. Oh, I thought that was so telling because that is, I feel like that is something that we still deal with today. That there are these supposedly liberal people who really let their true colors shine. Like they, they think that that then gives them a pass to get away with a lot more things. Like, oh no, then you're, you know, that's where that term performative comes in. Like, oh, you want to say you're a liberal, but really you have a lot of problems with this, that, and the other. So. I like the fact that she says that even his like one brief statement in the meeting like made them shit their pants. I enjoyed that. Like most things, I, th- I think political viewpoints are measures of degrees and, instead of being black and white. So I think it's extraordinarily common that people can be very, very liberal on one point, but totally be the opposite on other points. Mm-hmm. So it's I thought that was accurate storytelling to see people that um, we believed at the beginning Remember when we first uh, met them in the hallway? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That they were like the cool parents. And then we come to find out uh, they've got this problem. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael and Ben run into Hunter on Liberty Avenue. And I, I found this scene a little bit confusing, though. Hunter? What's going on? Reconnecting with old friends. Renewing social ties. Want some? No, we do not. Come on. Let's go. It's a school night. Ooh, a school night. <laughs> I'm not going back. Hey, you told the principal and us you had no intention of leaving. Well, it changed my mind. I never should have been there with people who think they're better than me. At least these guys. Accept me for who I am. Are we supposed to assume that he was also hustling? Or was he just hanging out and saying hi to his old gang from two years ago? I mean, maybe that's the ambiguity of the scene that could easily like explain why Ben and Michael. Yeah, they flipped out. They're like, "What are you doing here?" What the fuck are you doing? Yeah, I'm hanging out. What do you think? 
<laughs> so and to know that it's with for like current hustlers that are his former friends or 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 however you want to describe it, he could have easily have already turned a trick. Yeah, I wish we could have seen something like that. Yeah, or like he was about to or something like that. Yeah, he's like leaning into a car talking to Mm -hmm. like one of his old tricks or we think it's a new trick or something like that. Still Queer as Folk. There's more coming up. Stick around. Let's talk about uh, our first runner of the night, Brian's um, little problem. Uh, <laughs> w- one thing that I found funny that I always like to comment on is how uh, in Queers Folk universe, uh, they always use the the appellation Mr. So like Justin comes up to Babylon and all the bouncers are calling him Mr. Taylor. Good evening, Mr. Taylor. Welcome, Mr. Taylor. I just thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because he's the VIP, or he is a VIP. Uh, yeah, because Babylon is like, uh, yeah, I'm sure bottle service is happening in the back room at at Babylon. Mr. Taylor, your table is ready. Here comes your no, bottle with a sparkler service. in it. I thought Brian's uh, doctor scene was a little weird too. TV doctor offices are always so strange. They're like an executive's office. I'm like no, they're <laughs> sterile. They're white. They are. Right. There is a. Like it made it seem like he, Brian came around his desk and took off his pants. Yeah, this had like a Dyson light pointing at him. And yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what is this? There's like oil paintings on the wall. So uh, we find out that Brian has syphilis. So when did it first appear? A couple of days ago. Any idea how you got it? Probably from pulling too hard. It's not a blister, Brian. It's a canker. It looks like you've picked up a case of syphilis. Syphilis? That's so 80s, 1880s. Uh, it's about time that Brian caught something. I don't think he has. Has he? Justin told a bunch of people that he had crabs, but he was just kidding. I don't think he's ever caught anything. Like that would absolutely blow my mind if he has, yeah. if this is literally the first time that he's ever caught anything. I thought it was also interesting that he only has a 48-hour timeout. It's like you get your penicillin shot and then... 48 hours. That's actually, that, is, ready to go. that is, that is not true. Yeah. I think that would be like into like one or two weeks or something like that. Yes. You have seven to 10 days before they suggest you go into, into sexual activity again. I did like that, uh, notification of all partners thing that, and that reminded me of a clinic in Chicago where gay men can go and get testing. And they also have a notification service. And so if you test positive for something, you can give them a list of people that they will contact for you on your behalf and tell you um, that you're exposed to something and that you should get tested. At least they used to. This was back in the mid-aughts. And I remember one situation there where uh, somebody had given them my name and it was technically impossible that I'd hooked up with anybody in Chicago for like two weeks because I'd been out of town for a very long time. But somebody like gave them my name and I think it was one of those I'm going to get back at this guy by putting his name on my list. And so I got the call. Oh, that's not right. And I said, no, I don't think that's really possible. (laughs) Because I I should get tested anyway. Right. I mean, you still want to practice the the smart thing. Yeah. That whole 
experience of having to uh, uh, <laughs> the way they pass that information around in the bar. I thought was very funny and also very telling about that bar because ever because the fact that was everyone was like, you remember last Tuesday? And I was like, were you? all in the back room during that time? Oh, I've because actually seen that in what? action before. Uh, it wasn't syphilis, it was chlamydia. Uh, oh, where yeah. a, like, like a small group of people, well, smallish, like 20, 30 people that are all kind of socially interfacing with one mm-hmm. another end up uh, kind of spreading something around. And then they all kind of go into lockdown at the same time, at the same night at the bar. So I, I did like how it all came back uh, around to Emmett. <laughs> like <Yes>. mere seconds. <laughs> that was fun. I like that. That got me thinking about something though. Doesn't it seem a little sleazy that the owner of the bar is hooking up with so many of his customers? Doesn't it just seem a little like well, <laughs> I would say given the reputation that Brian Kenny has, even before he was the owner of Babylon, it's not that shocking. No, it's not shocking, but I just think it's kind of skeezy. There there's a bar in Chicago that used to have that reputation and the owners even kept an apartment slash quote office above oh the my bar. Because in, in Chicago, like a lot of the bars have residential apartments above them. And they had an apartment above the bar that they didn't live in. <laughs> That's so gross. Yeah, I'll tell you when we get off the air which bar that was. I think I have an idea. Okay, yeah. <laughs> So let's talk about where um, Brian tells Justin. First of all, I love it when Justin cooks. Uh, Something I bumped on here, though, is that Justin said that Michael loaned him a cookbook. That's suspiciously good. Did Julia Child leave you her cookbook? No. Michael lent me one of these. The little wives swapping recipes. Have we ever once seen Michael cook? or even show an interest in cuisine. Why does Brian, Why does Michael have cookbooks that he's loaning to Justin? I mean, first of all, they have to be Debbie's cookbooks. Let's talk about that. And second of all, Michael still holds his fork like a Neanderthal. We saw that That's at the true. dinner that yeah. had with Hunter. So yeah, I don't buy for a second that Justin is learning to cook fr- from something that Michael gave him. But we also remember how much of a disaster Justin was in the kitchen the first season. And here he is like using spices and he's got these beautiful colors. <laughs> like I was like, he is a chef all of a sudden. It's amazing what happens in four years. Are you talking about his first jambalaya scene? Yes. <laughs> Just a disaster. And here it's like he's got the boilers going, but like there's not a drop of sauce anywhere else. But in the yeah. pan, I loved it. I found it interesting that Brian just blurted out that he has syphilis and yet last season's entire arc was that Brian can't be seen to be frail or diseased. And granted, he had an obligation to tell Justin since they hook up, but just Brian's matter of fact delivery just seemed a bit incongruous to me based on his last, um, I'm keeping my testicular cancer a secret from you, by the way, get the (laughs) fuck out of my house. So I just thought this was a little weird. I have syphilis. Syphilis? It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It can cause heart abnormalities, mental disorders, blindness. Thank you for the public service announcement, Dr. Taylor, but the patient's already been treated and cured. But also, are you going to tell me that with all the casual sex that these people have had around Pittsburgh and the country, that they've never had to deal with the idea that they could possibly catch an STI? Yeah, right. <laughs> so the fact that like Ju- the fact that Justin like spit out this like like very elementary sex ed information about what syphilis can cause, I'm like, yeah, it can cause that if you leave it untreated yeah, for, for like for- a decade. <laughs> And by all you, accounts, Brian caught it right away, though. So yeah, detected it. Like right he away. saw it, and he got, and he got, he got tested, he got diagnosed, and he got treated. 
I thought it was funny that Justin actually knew that information, though. <laughs> All of a sudden, <laughs> he's like, like his science guy. <laughs> yeah, it's like his his reaction to it was so overblown to me. Like the the what I think two times I've had an STI, it was always just like a ah, damn it. And <laughs> you go, you get your treatment, and you move on. That's right. Get back in the game. <laughs> well, Brian made a fair comment that he could have gotten it from Justin. Um, I mean, Justin was in Hollywood and things like that. I, I would have liked to have seen that play out a little bit longer, too, because Justin yes. started out with the high ground because Brian is telling him, but the reality of it didn't get enough play. I, I think it would have been interesting to find out that, yeah, it came from uh, Connor, the the guy playing Rage. <laughs> <laughs> but, and that makes like that would have made the most sense considering how secretive is if he had ca- caught something he would never say it he would never mm-hmm. tell anyone there's a, a moment at the social gym which i don't know why this scene was there but it's uh brian and ben and th- they still seem to have this little feud going on I don't, I don't know where it's coming from but why on earth would brian tell ben that he has syphilis especially after taking him for a ride about being a stepford bag it's like Ben, you're this, that, and the other thing. And by the way, I have syphilis. Yeah, and also, Go. when was the last? When was the last time we had just a Brian and Ben scene? Ooh. And the social like where it's just, and only the two of them. Like usually, I was expecting like Emmett or Michael to interrupt the scene in some way. Mm-hmm. But no, it was just the two of them. And I was like, we did find out though that Ben is like a pig bottom. Because <laughs> Brian's talking about the gangbang that Ben was on his hands and knees at the Liberty Bass. <laughs> oh, I think he's a pig burst. Not at that, RG. Well, because we, which we never well, saw, no. by the way, it was never in right. the show. Yes, but we we know that he has absolutely topped Michael. Yeah, I think times, that's all he so. does. I don't think. Yeah, so this. I so, I, so I think ben. maybe maybe during his bottom period. Yeah. Yeah. So Brian comes home from Babylon early. Uh, we get some lines here that are setting up future stories with Justin and Brian. Uh, we see Justin is just not at all content with Brian being the same old Brian that he's always been for five years. How can you be so fucking casual? Did you ever get tired of it? Hmm. To get tired of something means it's become predictable, unsatisfying, boring sort of like where i suspect this conversation is headed or it can mean you found something more satisfying more meaningful (sighs) and what would that be i'm gonna take a shower you're coming to bed in a while some work to finish Uh, this is going to play out over the rest of season five. And so like all the Bravo uh, stories that they're copying, watch what happens. <laughs> so runner number two, Debbie and Loretta fudge and roses. These are fucking beautiful. And I made you fudge three kinds, chocolate, butterscotch and Rocky road. Jesus, what did they do to deserve all this? You ask me, you deserve everything. I've got the same complaints this episode about Rosie's really stiff performance. It's also implausible that Debbie, of all people, would have not seen what is going on here. She's the wisest person on the show, and yet she can't see that Loretta is into her. She should have seen that, like, right away. The second she kissed her. What? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Like what? 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 Like and first of all, Loretta is clearly not being coy about how she feels about Debbie. She's giving her roses and fudge. Actually, that fudge looks really good. Yeah, and then it doesn't make sense to me that Debbie, who is someone who has spent almost her entire adult life in and around the gay neighborhood, would not have. She has to have had been hit on by a woman at some point in her life. This would have been a perfect story for Vic to have been like smack dab in the middle of here. Debbie, uh, Debbie's approach to telling her Loretta that she's straight and not into her is to take her to a lesbian bar and then try to pawn her off onto somebody else. That's very un Debbie like. Yeah, I, I, don't, I just don't understand how she's not able to uh, navigate how to handle this. Right, like, of all people. You should have like years of experience on how to do this. Yeah, she's helped like how many people come out of the closet at the Liberty Diner? Exactly. The whole neighborhood. So she finally does have that conversation. It's about time. Well, I gotta go pick up those ones. Listen, please. Listen. You don't really love me. Why wouldn't I? You're wonderful. I'll take the compliment. But you just think you do. Because for the first time in your life, you're finally expressing the real you. And I am thrilled for you. Truly, I am. But you need to love someone who can love you back. The way you deserve. Exit Loretta. I didn't understand that shrimp story that she was telling. And I just didn't get this exit <laughs> moment. But but I'm glad this story's over with. It was just so awkward and shoehorned into the series. And I, I think it did Rosie a disservice, too. She didn't get all that compelling of a story and I don't know. This was just so bizarre to be into the show. Yeah. I, 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 I wish there could have been a more subtle way of like making her exit, but it's now like, well, I, I told off my ex-husband, you don't love me. I guess I'm just uh, going to go off on the dusty trail later. <laughs> okay. Bye. What? Yeah. So that's the last of uh, Rosie, uh, unfortunately, because she could have had so much, Better of a role here, but I'm sorry, Rosie, it just didn't work out. Mm. Uh, so our last round of the night is uh, Ted as Phantom of the Opera. I'm glad Calm that this down. arc is coming to an end. <laughs> Thank God. Here, here's the thing, though, about all of this stuff that Ted was going through at the beginning. Uh, what's so bad about him wanting to stay inside until he heals up? Why is it so important for him to be out in public while he's all beat up and recovering? Like if, the fact that they have the make like the 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 effects on him that he is clearly still swelling. Like he, he that's it, that's totally okay. He's like, yeah, I don't want to go out right now. I'd rather wait until it has fully healed. Okay, right. sure. Because I can see how that can be jarring if you, especially if you've had a lot of work done. Yeah, there are still stuff that it's not settled. Right, it's still coming down. So it is okay to like be like, mm, I'm gonna wait. Some people won't even go out with a hickey on their neck. <laughs> right? <laughs> I will. But <laughs> Did you notice uh, Emmett's outfit in that Phantom of the Opera scene, though? It was like this big fluffy coat with yes, what looked kind of like a crocheted afghan underneath yes. it. It was great. I loved it. We've uh, had a couple of missteps with them dressing Emmett, but like this, I think we're back. Yes. Emmett's great idea is to take Ted to the dyke bar. Uh, first of all, wow. Um, second of all, Ted is costumed as a stereotypical lesbian lumberjack. Wow. And then third, the stereotypical dyke that hit on Ted. Like, wow. 
I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Well, we already know that the show doesn't treat its main lesbian characters with a lot of dignity. Why would it do it for its extras? Like, it, it kind of, the show has a tendency for the gay men to really look down on the women in the show, unless they're Debbie. We really have to be in this fight together. It, it really just, it, it, it always irks me. Like, the fact that when they come into the dyke bar, or when they come into the lesbian bar, and you can say like, dyke bar, they called it the dyke bar. Uh, yeah, the, they portrayed them as like, dykes, also. So, like, like I sure. said, wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the the fact that its head repeats. Why did you bring me to a dyke? Like the the disdain that he has for that is just so. Uh, why? Yeah, I, I, the, I kind of wondered if this was funny in two thousand five. I don't remember maybe? this scene at all. I don't know uh, if it was funny two thousand five. I don't know if it holds up right now. It definitely didn't. This was probably one of the more cringy scenes that I've seen in the show in quite some time. So uh, it's like, I don't know what, uh, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know why this was here. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So there's a big reveal of Ted at a different bar. Uh, And of course he looks exactly like he did pre-op. To tell you the truth, he doesn't look all that different. I've never looked at him enough to know. There's something around the eyes. It's uh, rusted. That's it. So what? <laughs> Good work. Yeah. The only difference is that he he's not the platinum blonde anymore. Yeah. So hopefully the story's over because this was one of the more <sighs> pointless stories. It, it would have been one thing if they replaced the character <laughs> at the end, <laughs> like with a different character. <laughs> it's like in General Hospital they did that with Grant Putnam. This is way back in the eighties when I was into General Hospital as a wee little lad. And there was like this lead character and then they like the actor was leaving. And so they sent the character over a cliff and died in, or they thought he died in some kind of a fiery car crash. And then he came back with plastic surgery and was like a totally different character and totally different actor. I don't understand the soap operas and how they are able to get away with that. Well, I don't understand queer as folk and how they can like send somebody out for all this work (laughs) and have it like not work. (laughs) True. Okay, let's talk about tops and bottoms for this episode. What was your top? I have a couple. One, I love that we saw Daphne again. I was so <laughs> excited. I feel like it had been so long that I was like, I don't, that's Daphne, right? That is Daphne. I didn't want to get too excited. Yeah, she looked older too. Right? She's now like, oh, woman. She's, she's no longer yeah, like high school girl. She's taking care of herself. Um, and my other top would be, uh, at least for the first half of the episode, Hunter really taking that stand. Like saying like, no, this is about me. I'm going to be there. Then actually standing up to the parents saying like, you're all laughing behind my back. Now face me and do it. And the fact they all cowered in that moment. I loved that for him. I did notice that his costume was like really like Ninja Turtles. He had on like a lime green hoodie and like a red shirt. I thought he was very poorly costumed there. No. (laughs) Uh, But that was my top two. Um, Ben and Hunter destroying the parents at the meeting. Uh, I wish... We could have seen more impact from that moment, though. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. But those lines were great. Big fan. What was your bottom? Uh, I have two here as well. Uh, Debbie really being oblivious to Loretta being in love with her. Mm-hmm. Didn't buy it for a second. Uh, and the uh, the way the STI conversation is handled in this episode, that it, it, I, it, I really find it hard to believe that in a show that has been so much about amplifying the power that we have to have casual sex like that, that STIs have never truly been dealt with. 
HIV has. Yes. Like, so like HIV, like a, a chronic illness has been handled in a much more efficient way. Whereas I think infections like syphilis, like crabs, like, you know, run of the mill stuff. Yeah. Very easily treatable, um, are often treated as a punchline and almost like an embarrassment, but it's like th- that kind of stigma is the exact problem that we have when people don't report it and then it continues to spread. Like if we're able to have very open conversations about that, then the stigma about behind it will start to dissipate. And I think it's very interesting to me that the show took five seasons to get to where like, oh, it's since it's affecting Brian. Now we're seeing how all the other characters are handling it. Like they almost feel they almost felt like kind of like taken aback. Like, oh, you have syphilis. Uh, it's like, yeah, people get syphilis. It's a yeah. Thing. My bottom uh, is uh, kind of a bigger one here. Uh, the Ted and Loretta stories just got in the way of all the important stuff for this episode and the previous episodes. And we've seen some fans of this show troll us for being script and story connoisseurs instead of talking about the so-called legacy of the show. Mm-hmm. But when Cohen and Littman throw in such stink bombs that crowd out the meaningful stories of gay culture circa 2005, it cheapens the legacy of the show. The show would have had a much stronger position in history if those throwaway runners just stayed on the idea board and away from the scripts. Like you said, a whole episode on that parental meeting with Hunter is far more powerful than Ted's throwaway fake plastic surgery. It's better than wrote the Rosie O'Donnell injection. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay if they had created an episode where, like, we are just going to follow this character. Mm-hmm. Like that is that would have been an okay thing. And they used to, uh, you know, back into season one and two, uh, there mm-hmm. was a lot of prime story and then secondary story. But now it's like everybody's got to have a story. Everybody's got to have like X number of lines in the show. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that did the the stories any favors. And I don't think that it is telling meaningful stories. And I think they just crowd out the good stuff. So that was my bottom. Yeah. This has been episode five of season five, excluding and abstemiousness. Next time on Still Queers Folk, Ted plans to seek revenge against a guy who shunned him. Hunter starts skipping school. Brian feels he's no longer number one as a new younger guy hits the scene. That's episode six of season five, and it's called Bored Out of Ya Fucking Mind. <laughs> you were looking forward to saying that. I am. <laughs> if you like what you've been hearing and listening to, uh, we would really appreciate some fresh reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. Uh, you can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram at StillQueryF, and you can also continue the conversation on Facebook at StillQueriesFolk. You can find me on Instagram at Patrick Randall if you'd like to connect with me personally. And please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MatthewPD. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Patrick Randall. And I'm Matt Dominguez. Still Queer's Focus, a production of Slightly Unbalanced. Matt Dominguez wrote and performed the show with me tonight. New episodes every other week for season five. Still Queer's Focus made with love in Chicago.